0: I'm your host, Eric Koslick, and this episode, we've got a really exciting interview for you that takes what we'll call a multidisciplinary approach to cocktails. What do I mean by that? Well, in this episode, we hang out with architect, illustrator, and cocktail buff, Melissa Wood, who is partially responsible for one of the coolest cocktail books I've ever come across. The book is called The Architecture of the Cocktail, and... It portrays mixed drinks and their ingredients as if an architect drafted them on a blueprint. Crazy, I know, but I think Melissa's approach to visualizing cocktails and their ingredients can teach us some really interesting things about mixology. But as always, before we jump in here, I wanna give you the chance to make yourself a drink. And I figured we should probably feature something seasonally appropriate that is also portrayed in Melissa's book. So as I was flipping through, I came across a cocktail with a dangerous sounding name, the El Diablo. To make this drink, you're gonna need a couple normal cocktail staples, tequila and ginger beer, and also a slightly less common ingredient called creme de cassis. Now we've encountered this ingredient on the podcast before. It's a French-style liqueur made with black currants, which are difficult to find in the U.S. due to a law against their cultivation designed to prevent a certain type of blight. However, there are a few places where the laws have been revised. New York is one of those places. And we're starting to see some domestic versions of creme de cassis. One of those is produced by our friends over at Mount Defiance Distillery in Middleburg, Virginia. And if you want to learn more about that, you can hear distiller Peter Alf talk about the process of procuring those black currants and some of the the laws surrounding that cultivation back in episode 19 of this podcast called Misfit Spirits. And if you want another take on creme de cassis, check out flavor scientist Dan McCall's explanation of why black currants are so damn delicious, way back in episode five. So we're back on the El Diablo now. We've got our tequila, our ginger beer, our black currant liqueur, and a lime for our garnish. And I'm gonna give you two different approaches to the recipe, and you'll see why in a second here. So according to the architecture of the cocktail, you'll combine two ounces of Blanco or silver tequila, same thing. Three quarters of an ounce of creme de cassis. You're going to take those, put them in a Collins glass with ice, and then top that up with ginger beer and garnish with a lime wedge. Since you're putting in the creme de cassis before the ginger beer, it's also useful to give that a quick stir with a straw before you put on your garnish because uh, logically the liqueur is going to be heavier it's going to kind of sit at the bottom so if you want the drink to be balanced you're going to want to give it a little stir Then we got a slightly different take on the el diablo uh, from imbibe.com and this recipe calls for one and a half ounces of reposado tequila so it's slightly aged you've got a half ounce of creme de cassis a half ounce of lime juice and then three ounces of ginger beer so if you compare these two The architecture of the cocktail version of the El Diablo is going to be a bit sweeter, a bit more mellow, with the emphasis on the creme de cassis and the ginger beer, whereas the imbibe.com version is going to be driven by the flavor of the aged tequila, and it's going to be accented by that healthy dose of lime juice. So from this we can gather that when you want to make an El Diablo cocktail, you know that you need tequila creme de cassis and ginger beer, but the questions you should be asking yourself are A, what kind of tequila do I want to use? B, how much acidity do I want in my drink? Do I want an actual dose of lime juice or do I just want to have that lime wheel as the garnish? And then C, how sweet do I want it to be? Uh, Creme de cassis is a notoriously sweet liqueur, very fruity and also very sweet. So, just dialing that up a quarter of an ounce is really going to affect the outcome of the drink. So answer those three questions. The ingredient ratios you'll want to use should be very clear. And now that your head is spinning with all that wonderful El Diablo information, let's return to our interview with Melissa Wood. Some of the things that she and I discuss include how a girl with a love for literature and art forged a career for herself in the world of architecture and design. The similarities and differences between cocktails, buildings, and designed spaces. The process for figuratively slicing open 70 cocktails and organizing their guts for us on a piece of paper. Best practices for setting the mood during your next cocktail party. The reason why blueprints are blue, and much, much more. The Architecture of the Cocktail is a book you should have on your shelf. For a couple reasons one it's the first book of its kind to present recipes in such a visually engaging way so if you've ever uttered the words i'm a visual learner you're in for a real treat and two it's just a beautiful object to have on your bookshelf i actually place mine with the cover facing outwards so that i can see it every time i walk by so be sure to hit up the show notes to check out more of melissa's work And please head over to your local bookstore to pick up your own copy of the book. But for now, all you've got to do is sit back and enjoy this design-driven cocktail conversation with architect and illustrator Melissa Wood. Melissa, thanks for being on the show.
1: My pleasure. I'm happy to be here.
0: So we're here to speak about a really interesting topic in cocktails. It's a little bit different than anything we've ever talked about, so I'm excited for that. But before I spoil it, can you just introduce yourself and tell folks a little bit about what you do outside of the world of cocktails, and then we'll get there.
1: I am happy to do that. I I draw. I draw for a living. I'm an illustrator, uh, sort of by default, I had other career aspirations. I graduated from college with a degree in English literature, art, and history. I thought I was going to go tackle Hollywood and write fascinating scripts and direct fascinating movies. But instead, I didn't. I ran a printing press in outside of the Chicago suburbs because I couldn't get a job. So I decided I should go to graduate school so I could have a training and so I could get my life going. So first I went to the School of the Art Institute in Chicago, and that turned out to be really mellow. It would have been great for an undergrad degree, but for graduate school, I was on the pressure cooker of my life because I really wanted a darling apartment in a city and a top career. So I ended up switching schools to a full-time interior design, interior architecture program, in Chicago on Michigan Avenue overlooking Grant Park, Lake Michigan. It's beautiful. And I learned how to build buildings, design buildings, do architectural sections, became a colorist. I studied textiles, everything you need to know to build a building, design the interiors, deal with clients, illustrate. It was mastered there. I I also got a lot of back Ground uh, in art history, which I hadn't, I tipped on a little bit in, in college or touched on, but I hadn't really delved into it. So then I got a job in architecture in Chicago and I uh, did a lot of contract design, some restaurants, some residential interiors, exteriors, worked with some cool people. And then I had a baby, moved out of the city, didn't have a job, but I, I realized I needed an outlet for my, my little creative energy. And I also wanted to earn a little pin money, so. I've always been able to draw. I designed my son's birth announcement and all the neighbors were running around asking me to design something for them. So from that, I re- launched a stationery company, worked out of my house. I did that for 18 years, raised the kids as a single mom, draw, 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 draw. Architecture, people would hire me to draw their houses, either portraits or greeting cards because I'd learned how to get things printed. I'm And this is It's post-fax machine, but it's pre-Google. It's pre-website. It's pre-everything. We're talking the the Stone Age. And I was running around with three babies and a company at home. Um, But I got a lot of clients, and I got a lot of uh, wonderful connections from people that bought note cards. You know, celebrities came to call. I did a lot of custom work for them. So I ended up just drawing for a living. When I got tired of the note card business after 18 years, I decided I wanted to design other products without the overhead of packing and shipping and and, uh, having sort of a warehouse existence. So I just started figuring out the whole social media thing. I had successfully gotten press from my card company by sending notes to editors of major magazines because back in the 90s and the 00s, that was how you got press. Little article in town and country and Oprah Winfrey's producers saw that, so then I was one of Oprah's favorite things, and it spun into, you know, sort of a more of a national presence, but I I didn't want to do the note card thing. I started pitching myself on my website, because now websites were a thing, and I figured out my gig would be just to draw pretty pictures, stick it up on the website, and connect it to LinkedIn. That's the amount of thought I put into it, and that brought me Garnet Hill, uh, collaboration with a great art rep. And we did a lot of work with, um, with Crate and Barrel three series of framed illustrations, betting on Garnet Hill, holiday, Santa Claus, really adorable children's betting. But the best of all, which led to this book is, um, an editor of HarperCollins UK saw my, one of my posts from my website that went to LinkedIn and loved my illustrations. So she sent me an email and said, are you interested in illustrating books? And I literally answered, what took you so long? Because I've always wanted to illustrate books. And I love reading. I love drawing. And the two made sense to combine. So we were going to do a travel book together. But before that, I said, would you be interested in a cocktail concept? And what I had launched, this blueprint idea from had to do with a frame print that we had done with Crate and Barrel, my art rep had thought of the idea, said, can you do your architectural work on cocktails? And there was a great cocktail blueprint that Crate and Barrel sold for a couple of years, and it had been discontinued. So I showed it to my new editor, and she said, that's the book. We'll hold off on the travel books. And so that brings me to you. That's how we got the book going. Yeah.
0: Amazing. Yeah. I remember... The first time I saw the book, I was at Tales of the Cocktail, and it jumped off the shelf next to some of the others. It's got a picture, I believe, of is it the martini or the Manhattan on the it's front.
1: It's a martini. No, it's a Manhattan because that, my friend, is a cherry.
0: There it is. So we've got a beautiful picture on the front, and immediately it kind of distinguished itself from uh, most of the other books that have these very Instagram-y looking very beautiful, but very instagram looking kind of cocktails on the front. And so I said, what is this? And I opened it up, and I ended up flipping right to the, uh, I guess, the the legend, we'll call it for, for sure. now. I'm sure you have a better name for it, and we'll definitely return to this. But I, I saw all these patterns, and you know, as I flipped through the book, it was, it was very clear immediately that it was different than pretty much anything that I had previously come across in the cocktail space. And so I immediately picked it up and it has, I am not a recipe Mm -hmm. guy. I don't like looking at cocktail recipes because I've, I've read all those books and yet this is still something I return to, especially when it comes to, you know, thinking about the way I present cocktails. So I'm hoping that we can just tell folks the story of the architecture of the cocktail, which is the title of your book, Um, talk about your collaboration with Amy, and uh, then we can maybe get into this fascinating discussion of the similarities of cocktails and architecture.
1: They're very similar. and You know, the basic one, and I'll answer that question later, but they're both inspiring. And you know, an environment—you create a world, a small vignette. Be at a little cocktail party or a little home bar, or going to your favorite little corner pub for something is, to me, is inspiring an experience. It's like you—you're transported. It's the same thing as looking at a beautiful building, a beautiful architecture, or interiors, or ornamentation or details are as important to architecture as an embellishment is to a cocktail or this or the the glass it's in. If the glass has some etching or has a vintage feel to it. Uh, I'm really visual. And so for me, the, the two are very, are, are strongly inspiring cultural, you know, iconic elements to our world.
0: Right. I have so many questions about that, but how did you end up getting paired up with Amy and what was the process for putting this book together? Like
1: it's fascinating. I've my freelance career, which is what I've done since I had the first child, I'm just a freelance illustrator, that's all I've said I am. I have learned about so many different creative industries because of the projects that have landed literally on my lap. So when Janine Dillon of HarperCollins UK sent me that message on LinkedIn about the book, I showed her the cocktail blueprint and I'll send you the link because it's, it's still out there. I have people finding me saying, do you have any? Can I buy them? And I do have some. And yes, they can buy them. Um, They're great teacher gifts too, I'll just roll them up. Or now my kids are in their 20s, I just give them to their friends and they're just ecstatic. That blue line, there's something so artful about the simplicity of an architectural plan, or in this case, these are architectural sections. Janine loved the poster. I said, I really think it would make even a better book because the poster, I don't know, I'm looking at one now, in my kitchen, it's got about 18 cocktails. Um, but this, this book, we put together 75. Um, what fascinated me is I learned how books are made, how the publishing world works. And I've since done other books with a great team uh, in the U.K. And in, and in the U.S. And this is how it goes. if It's an acquiring editor, Janine. She said, I want to do the book. Let me pass it by my team. I did a couple of proofs. Then they coordinated with one of their book designers who actually lives in Tokyo, but she's French. Never, you know, it's this wonderful global thing, thank you to my little cute computer and iPhone. Um, So they make some spreads, what they're called, Uh, basically like a little brochure and a pitch letter. They take it to the London Book Fair or the Frankfurt Book Fair where book buyers and sellers around the world gather and everybody tries to hawk their wares. I mean, if you're a megastar, yes, they'll publish your book because they know they can sell it, In this case, they show it to the book-buying world, or major chains, Waterstones, Barnes & Noble, and all that stuff. Uh, And they came out of there saying, we can sell this book. So their next job was, and this fascinates me, was to find a writer. And in their world, uh, they knew of Amy. Uh, She writes frequently for a lot of publications. I know she's doing a lot of work with Imbibe. And she just finished another book. I think it came out last year. So, Interestingly, I I had not met Amy, and we were collaborating on this book together. The order of preference was: have Amy write the recipes, send me the recipes, and I start to work. And there was a, a pretty short deadline. But if I push away all the noise and sit at my little drafting table and drink plenty of coffee and an occasional cocktail, you know, once you get going, it's really it's good. So I do that to pair with her recipes. And then it goes to Tokyo, to Sophie, who then does this beautiful layout. Um, And then it goes to New York and London, to the publishers and editors. And then, boom, they're printing the book. And voila, there it is.
0: (laughs) That makes uh, what I'm sure is a very uh, arduous process seem pretty simple. And that is Amy Zavato, correct?
1: Yes, Amy Zavato. Cool, so... We did meet though. We met a few the following summer. This book came out in October of 13, and I'm thrilled to see it keeps it keeps selling because when Janine and I talked about it, we wanted it to be a classic, visually a classic. And Amy's writing is wonderful. She's, she shares the history of them, but you know, as you say, what sets one drink's book apart from another, the stunning visual, which I sort of look at, I think I can't believe I drew all that stuff, and I have the bad back to to prove it. But it really, it just, it's so stark. And the the beautiful patterns, um, you know, it, it's, it's almost lyrical the way this thing looks. So the editors had asked us to go to the Tales of the Cocktail the following summer to do some book signings with Octavia Books. And I thought, well, that is awesome. I'm going to make it a family vacation. Went down with my three kids, all of drinking age. Got a great place in the French Quarter. Everybody signed up for their seminars. And then Amy and I met. At the table while we were, you know, signing the books, I thought she was a kick. She was wonderful. We loved her husband. Um, We hung out with them, had drinks, and I really just connected with her. So we've just stayed connected ever since, and we've been trying to think of, you know, some other little collaborations we could do together. Yeah.
0: Well, that's an excellent story. And Tales of the Cocktail is a great place to go as an enthusiast. And that that Bitters and Bookstore run by Octavia Books. I've I've Mm. been in there with with our bitters, but but the, the book signings are also a really, really fun way to walk up to somebody like yourself or like David Wondrich, who's this huge star and in the cocktail world and just get, you know, uh, you have a real face to face conversation it's it's a very rare opportunity
1: yeah it was it, it was insane and let me tell you that one little thing elevated me in my children's eyes to an extreme high point that was mom you are you're cooler than we thought <laughs> like all right that's really the only reason that I did it guys yeah. just for that
0: all right so now that we know the story of how the architecture of the cocktail came to be I want to get weird and nerdy with it because I was also unemployable with my uh, degree in poetry before I started this <gasps> uh, this cocktail thing.
1: Poetry matters.
0: So I think we might we might have a, a pretty interesting conversation. Uh, and the, the big question I want to pose to you to kick off that conversation is in what ways are cocktails and buildings similar and different, right? Like we've got this, scale is obviously a thing in there, but how do cocktails and buildings or architectural designs even enter into the same conversation?
1: Well, if you look at, I look at everything, we need, well, we don't need cocktails, but we kind of really do. We need architecture, we need shelter, Within shelter, we need we need an environment. We need culture. We need entertainment. We need something sophisticated, something that sets the mood and the tone when we're when we're sharing our shelter with people. I think that they go hand in hand. And for me, an environment really tells a story. I, and I'm so visual that if I walk into something that's unattractive, I, it affects my mood. I, I can't go. Just like when you sip a cocktail that tastes nasty, I don't want any more. I want things that are lovely that fit. The frame of mind that I am, I'm in, or the country I'm in, or the, or um, with the complexities of the, of the personalities of the people that I'm with at the time. One of the most obvious ones is they both are a structure. You you make a cocktail in a specific glass for specific reasons. The amount of this that goes into that, the little teeny glass, the tall Tom Collins glass, the stemware, everything. Calls into consideration when you think about what you're going to be putting into it, and what that cocktail, you know, what those mixologists have put together to um, create that little experience with the fizz and the buzz or the sparkle or the color, or the clink of the ice, all of that. Architecture is the same way. You need you need a structure. You need the outside skin. Um, but this, they're similar because they both they both need layers. There are the layers that go in that you build upon and what you put down first matters. You don't start with drywall. You need to pour a foundation. So let's say a cocktail, the foundation is uh, the glass, you know, uh, you know what it's going to look like, but then you have to layer. Then comes the concrete. Then, oh no, we've got rebar in the concrete. And then what do you do to support the walls? And then how do you hold it all up? And, And so as you're building this, the steps matter. You don't put the electricity in before you put the foundation on. And when you're making a cocktail, just like when you're making a wonderful soup or something incredible, baking is diabolical because you have to be precise, which is why I don't bake. Um, but for the, for the drinks, for um, the proportions of architecture, I feel like visually it's, it's become as important visually to have a satisfying, beautiful, embellished cocktail as it is to have an attractive home. I mean, look at, house, look at Instagram, look at how crazy everybody is with their HGTV, design your home and flip a home and tiny houses. And people are really spending a lot of time now talking about and becoming familiar with the vernacular of architecture and design and interiors. And when I grew up, no one said anything about it at all. I don't know. It just wasn't a part of uh, lay people's interests. Cocktails, they used to drink a lot when I was young. I mean, the whole days of the train car and the boozers and the dads getting off with their fedoras and they were bombed. And who knows what the housewives were doing all day, but I know my mom liked her martinis. Um, it, It died down a little bit, but now there's a sophistication that's tied to both and a much, I feel a much stronger awareness just amongst us, the citizens of the land who want and appreciate a really good cocktail and want and appreciate a really attractive, intentionally designed place to live. Even if it's a studio apartment, design matters, cocktails matter. So, you know, I think that they're both, they're, they're trendy for a reason because they're sort of the, they're, the indulgences in life. It's like, they're the cherry on top.
0: Sure. I also don't bake. It's scary. Yeah, no way. It's, it's it's too much like science, Mm -hmm. Not, not enough room for, uh, for delightful errors. Usually they're just despicable errors. Yeah. When you were talking about you know, designing things with multiple layers in mind, with with, with the people in the spaces taken into consideration. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I was thinking of, you know, some some very first principles things, like the fact that we live in a a universe where there's two things. There's there's matter and then there's energy, right? Mm -hmm. There's atoms and void, to put it in, uh, you know, in a more atomic sense. And I remember I took in, this is going to sound like a tangent, hopefully it won't be. Uh, I I took in grad school, I I had a class where we spent a lot of time focusing on uh, a work called Dererum Natura, which is a it's a Roman translation of the first Epicurean theories, which actually ended up being one of the first written accounts of an atomic worldview, as opposed to, you know, a, a different type of worldview. So like the, the concept that our world is made up of these little sub-visual particles that, that create everything. And mm-hmm. the way that Epicurus through Lucretius, who is the writer of De Rerum Matura, described things, you know, he described sound as the process of sound atoms moving wow. through walls and just the way that the dynamics of those things were described. It was just very beautiful and artistic. And, and the, the fact that it was described in poetic terms, It was excellent, but it it called into question these big questions about spaces and about the bodies that move through those spaces. And I think that is precisely what architecture is, and and especially when you were describing your background with literature and really getting into things like history through the characters and the fictional accounts um, that that you read as as a child and, and as a young adult. It just sounds like you have a really great background to come at this. And so I guess my next question about the designed cocktails in this book is how did you decide on the patterns and the display elements that you use to take a cocktail and turn it into a blueprint?
1: It's a good thing that I went to school because I know the term poche, which is French. Poche in architectural terminology when you're drawing a plan or you're drawing a section you know an elevation an elevation is when you just look at a, a blank wall i'm going to draw the rectangle i'm going to do the chair rail i'm going to do the windows doors that's a flat thing you know renderings are when you do a whole 3d beautiful hand-drawn color rendering so it looks sort of like a photograph so you can conjure up what your, your what your design is actually going to look like and i'm so old that i left architecture right when they brought in cad so now You know, primarily it's computer-aided design. I had to take out my pen, my pencil, my pen, and my straight edge and triangle and do that. But um, learning about the elements of of that part of architecture, you know, the floor plan is what people would say a bird's eye view. It's what you see if you stare down at the space. And a section um, is when you slice through the stuff so that you can, like if you slice through your, you know, Monte Cristo sandwich and peel it open you can see what's inside that sandwich and the layers, you know, the cheese is not on the bottom, there's bread on the bottom, or actually there's probably a layer of butter with the bread and the bread, so-and-so. So when, uh, in, in projects I've designed millwork, for instance, you know, custom um, desks or conference tables or furniture, it, walls, you so that the, the contractor, the builder knows how to build it according to your design, you slice through it in a, in a drawing called a section then they need to build it according to your design. Um, Structurally, engineers do it for major skyscrapers. I do it for little baby things and now for glassware. So the poche is the term connected to the pattern, which denotes the material. So the key, you had said before, the little pattern on the opening of the book, we label it specifications. You know, in an architectural drawing, you could also say it's a key. It shows you... Every pattern is connected to a material. So if this was a house that we were up to, you would see the brick, you would see the gravel, concrete, rebar, plywood, two-by-four beams, uh, the insulation, electrical. So every single thing has pattern, so that they could look at it, and the guys or the gals know, oh, okay, that's where, that's plywood, and that's 3 eighth inch plywood. So we had to do the same thing with these drawings. So for me, I just started And this is where it's kind of fun. I just, I love doodling. I always doodled in the margins of my school notebooks when I would just tune out the very earnest professors doing their best to educate me. So in, in the, in the idea of just making little patterns, I drew a bunch of rectangular boxes and I just started filling them in. Like this is a pretty pattern. I'll do bubbles. I'll do grids. I'll do 90 degree. I'll do 45 degree. I'll do this, blah, 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 blah. I did run out. I did have a headache or two because It's hard to come up with new ones. I don't know. Do I have 200? All told, I have no idea how many I had, but I will say that as my kids would walk by me, I was doing this on the Kitchen Island over a summer, and their college friends would walk by, or high school friends. They did a lot of cheering me on, which I really appreciated, but they also were sort of amazed, and I'd say to them, give me a pattern. Show me the bottom of your shoe. Let me see what your sweater, what is your backpack, because you run out of it. Run out of them, but I did enough to get this book done. You know, some of them are they don't really have anything to do with the in a perfect world they would make sense based on what they are. I mean the club soda has little bubble like things. But after a while I just started I just wanted to create a patterns that to me I wanted the filled cocktail graphically to be as pretty as a real cocktail. So when I put those ice cubes in there, I wanted them layered and you know, sort of an asymmetrical. Sometimes I'd have the placements be very symmetrical depending on what the cocktail was. If it was a two ingredient cocktail with no embellishment, then I I would have wanted the design to be a little bit more kooky so that there was some interest when you'd look at the drink. Some of them are small scale, some were larger scale. Some I got to them and I thought, what what the hell? Like, what was I thinking? This is a very impossible pattern to draw over and over again. but but my biggest concern was I wanted the pretty shapes in each little drink to just make a pretty abstract design. And what is this? The well, how do I even say that? Caperin C- Uh
0: The cyparina.
1: There you go. See, you you know the, more than I do. You're, okay, we're like-minded. I love the the ice, the sugar, you know, the, everything layered. Those circles. The lime, the the direction on the above, the stir, everything about that to me is just a pretty little pattern. It would make a lovely little pillow if someone printed it in the right, you know, orange on top of maybe a teal background. So uh, while I was coming up with patterns, I also would have to redo some patterns for a, a liquor or an ingredient if I didn't like the way it looked in the glass.
0: Yeah. No, that makes sense. And I like how you, with some of the ingredients, uh, I'm just going to call out a few of them here, Mm -hmm. like the sugar cube uh, is is one shape. It's a square with an S on it. And then you can tell that for your simple syrup pattern, it's a couple of those little cubes. So you, you see the tie in with The sugar cube with the Peychaud's bitters, I I see a bunch of little droplets there. Yeah. And, you know, just like you dash little Mm -hmm. drops in there. Lemon and lime are both triangle patterns. Uh, They're kind of inverse triangle patterns. Correct. And the triangle has a lot of points to it. And there have been some psychological studies that indicate that you can, if you're asked to taste something that is acidic, for example, and you are given, say, two words to name it. This is actually applied to shapes, but it, the, the concept also applies to flavors. Mm-hmm. They, they, they drew a sharp shape with a lot of points and said, is this, uh, this booba or kiki? And people called it kiki because it had the sharp. sharp yeah. Sharp. And so the, the acidity here, to me, this is kind of an extension of that And just a lot of, you know, you can tell how much thought went into the design of some of these, especially the ones that are more common.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, no, I agree. I had, I I know that doing the embellishments was just super fun because, you know, how do I make sort of an abstract mint sprig? And I I have sort of a a little bit of a Honolulu looking leaf, but I wanted something that was, I couldn't get too detailed because I knew these were going to be on a small scale in this book. So they had to be simplistic. But many of them, you know, the embellishments especially look closer to a geometric version of the real of the real thing, while still really tying into the poche and the patterns that were being used in the layered elements and the ingredients of the cocktail.
0: Right. And so with these cross sections that you produced, one of the things that really strikes me as interesting is that it almost, not almost, it 100% necessarily needs to be displayed in a sedimentary way where you're layering these measurements on top of one another. Mm -hmm. So if there's, say, two ounces of something, that's going to be a fairly large or thick layer compared to maybe the half ounce layer that sits on top of it of a different ingredient. And so you can almost see through these layers, if you're looking at it in a sedimentary way, like the layers of different geological deposits in a canyon, you can almost see which ingredient, the, the process of adding these ingredients to the glass. And so even though it doesn't have like a like a video or an act, action component to it, you can see the process already there in the glass. It's like deconstructing something that's been constructed.
1: It's true. You can also understand the proportions. Exactly. Right as I would warn kids going off to college, make your own drinks, number one. you know, Don't let somebody else make your drink. But then also just be aware of what, what tastes good to you too. If you're just starting with a you know a simple gin and tonic or something, there, there's a ratio. And, and it's important to understand the ratio so that you get the, the flavor that you like or the flavor that the drink is supposed to have. And seeing it as you've described it, as I'm looking through these again, it really is, it's such an artful way, thank you architecture, to show how much of what needs to go into something that, you know, in, it, in its completion is, is one, one thing? But, yep. but you can understand all of these layers and, and how important it is and how much work went into the, the creation of all of these through time tested and, you know, different situations and cultures and climates and histories, what went into every single one of these things as, as beautiful little recipes.
0: Sure. Sure. And there is kind of a a bit of an alchemy element to it, right? You're taking these things that are separate. And then Mm -hmm. when you enjoy them, when you take that sip, it's almost like you took all of these separate things and made some gold out of it. But, you know, that was the the challenge to the alchemist was finding those ratios.
1: You're right. That's well said. Your poetic side is is showing.
0: Well, I spent a lot of time thinking about it for better or for worse.
1: (laughs) I think it's fine. It's working out okay for you.
0: I did want to ask about the measurements. And this is something that, you know, you, you have a little bit of uh, experience traveling and writing about things in the UK and in Paris. And so obviously in the rest of the world, Mm -hmm. people measure things on a base 10 system, which is, you know, really logical, but here in, uh, America where the, the cocktail was invented, at least in its current form, sure. we measure things in a standard. So I noticed that in the book you you list metric and standard measurements for the the cocktail recipes, and I'm just wondering um, if that ever presents a translation issue um, between the U.S. and the rest of the world. Um, you know, at least in if you've ever had conversations with someone and found that translation issue to be a problem.
1: Well. The, the reason that the book shows both is because it was published for both the U.S. and the U.K. target audience. HarperCollins UK is based in London, and they go go through England, Ireland, Scotland, Canada, Australia, New Zealand. So their measurements correspond with their culture. But for this, it really was a – the reason was because the audience, the, the people that were going to be buying this – Um, Would want to adhere to one or the other. It just sort of made it more um, flexible to different uh, cultures and uh, those measurements corresponding with, with, as you say, we Americans versus the rest of the world.
0: Yeah. One last question I had about... I guess design and color before we jump into some lightning round questions here is the blue on white. And mm-hmm. this is a very dark, I mean, I'd say it's maybe just shy of a Navy blue mm-hmm. um, and it's a very white, white, if that makes sense. It's not an off white. And, and so when you're paging through the book and looking at it, I it's, it's just, unless you're sifting through blueprints all day, I have to imagine it, it's a very, very dark, kind of stark experience compared to what you're usually looking at. So is there any uh, reason why these colors are used in the book or in blueprints in general?
1: History. History, my friend, will give you the answer to anything. Early on, when blueprints and the reproducing large architectural drawings was something that they, that they could do, there was a machine that could do it, I don't have the answers. I, don't, I can't tell you the chemicals involved, but the only way to reproduce these black line drawings, because you draw them in, in pencil lead, you know, Frank Lloyd Wright's drawings, Louis Sullivan's drawings, the, the initial method to reproduce a blueprint, they were called blue, blueprints, blue line drawings, the ink and the, the reverse, that it was blue. It wasn't a black ink that was used, they didn't turn black, they turned blue. So if you unearthed some early architectural drawings from some early 20th or 19th century building, they're, they're going to be blue. And it wasn't till later on that they started doing them with a white background and just a black line. So this really has to do with sort of, it's more of like a industrial technological reason. So again, back to when we first did the, the cocktail print, the inspiration was someone, there was sort of like an engineering thing in some old bar in Wisconsin that was ahead of, there was a grant, there was no copyright to it. My, the, my art art rep friend and her husband saw it and thought, let's see if Crate, Crate and Barrel wants to do this. And Creighton and Barrel said, we wanna do that. So then they called me and said, do that. I already knew from my architectural training, the history of the blue line drawings. And so for me, um, one of the things that I was pickiest about with with HarperCollins was I, it needed to be the correct blue. Because it's not Robin's egg blue, it's not sky blue, it's not purple blue, it's, it's the blue blue. That the blue line prints were could only come in one color, and so that was that's the reason for the color of the background. You know, I've done another book. It's Architecture of the Shot, and we did a bright red, and we're in talks, um, fingers crossed, to do the Architecture of Coffee with some libation coffee drinks, and that is sort of being pitched around right now. I've done some spreads for that, which would be super cool because I've I got a lot of coffee bean patterns in my in my noggin that I've been working on. So that's the reason for the blue.
0: Very cool. Well, that's a, that's a cool little piece of history for folks. Mm-hmm. Um, do you have time to do a few lightning round questions? I have all the time in the world. Beautiful. Starting off here, what is your favorite cocktail? And if you can't name a favorite of all time, what's something that you've recently fallen in love with?
1: I, I am, I am going to give you some, one of the most bland answers. It is a bloody Mary. I, I, I just love Bloody Mary's. I love V8. I'd go out and I would just not get schnockered because I'd fill up on the V8 juice. I like a little kick to it. I love olives in it. I always would just love that with gin, not even with vodka. The different phases of my life, I've loved gin and tonic because it's sort of seasonally. In the spring I want a margarita. I love Pisco Sours. Um uh, Bubbly, a Cure Royale, Prosecco, I, The last drink I had was a lovely glass of Prosecco. So it really just kind of like the music. If you ask me what music I like, I will list you 100 genre of music. The situation, wintertime, this or that, you know, a glass of port. But I also love the old-fashioned one, Sidecar. I I love vintage Hollywood movies. So when they're saddling up to the bar and they want to have a, you know, a a beer and a bump. I had to explain to my daughter what a bump was. And then she was somewhere recently and she heard a man say a bump. And she said, oh, I know what he meant. It was, you know, shot awry. So I I, I really go into the mood of the moment when I'm going to have a cocktail. And, and now with my little super cool kids, they'll throw one my way. And when we'll get together for a holiday or dinner out, they're introducing me to something that they've just fallen in love with at, you know, some of the places that they've been to in the city. So we sort of, always sample new
0: things i love diversity yeah i do too if you were a cocktail tool or ingredient what would you be and why
1: okay this is the easiest of all i would be a swizzle stick because i love mixing things and environments and people and stories all together into one wonderful experience
0: beautiful very cool answer If you could have a cocktail with anybody in the world, past or present, who would that be? Where would you go? What beverage would you drink? Just kind of paint a picture for us.
1: All right. I have two answers, if that's okay.
0: That's perfect.
1: I just finished reading Z by Anne-Therese Fowler, and it was her depiction of what Zelda Fitzgerald's version of her life was, and it was a mess. All along, I'd always read that she was she was the naughty, crazy one, and F. Scott kept it together. That is not the truth. I believe this is the <laughs> solid truth, though I have to do further research. And I've tweeted with the author, and she's encouraging me to continue looking into more answers. I would have a Gin Rickey with Zelda Fitzgerald in the Riviera, and I would want to know her side of things. Because I think her alcoholic husband was gaslighting her. I think she was... An independent woman who wanted her own writing career, and he sabotaged it based on the demons of his own weirdo makeup and brain. So that's the first one.
0: Quick question uh, before we move on to the next. Have you seen the – I believe it's an Amazon series with Christina Ricci as Zelda Fitzgerald?
1: Love it. Love it. Love it. She played it to a T. I mean sort of the – exuberance, the, the manic, the needy, like she, it was perfect. The embodiment of the whole thing. And I really, I had always, Zelda has always been described as mental, in and out of mental institutions. This doesn't mean anything. There's a great Netflix piece. I can't remember what it's called. Maybe I'll send you an email about this wonderful independent artist who may or may not have been a lesbian, but who talked about those things, who inherited her parents' money and she would go to Provincetown and paint eventually her lawyer got a hold of the money after her parents died he had her committed and he just lived off the money and he gave her little little par- parcels of cash she was totally fine but after 40 years locked away yes she had you know some mental issues yeah. so i'm i'm really rooting for zelda here yeah. i'll get back to you when i find out more
0: cool and what is the what's the part b of this answer
1: okay queen elizabeth
0: the current or the past
1: Uh, The current, I don't, I mean, the first one probably drank mead and she was dressed in gold, you know, armor, the current one, because she has witnessed such a vast, talk about archaeological digs, what that woman has had her face and her foot and her head and her hands involved in, in, you know, my lifetime plus another one, I think is really fascinating. And so where we would go, because I think she's really funny. I think she's cheeky and has a little funny sense of humor not to mention her sense of duty and service and loyalty and morality, which is kind of in short display right now. I'd have a gin and tonic with her because she likes a and every day, and we would be on the turret of St. George's Chapel in Windsor overlooking Harry and Meghan's upcoming wedding. Beautiful. Yeah.
0: I recently came across something on the internet, and I I don't know if I can find it again, but it was the displayed signatures of every English monarch going back to like some very, very long ago time. And it was all just kind of on one page, and they all fit on there. So it's just kind of cool. I think as somebody who's interested in design and lines, it's cool to go back and and look at that. So definitely see if you can find that.
1: I'm going to Google it. I'm writing it down right now.
0: So we got the kind of speculative questions. Now we're going to move on to mm-hmm. some advice. Are there any books about cocktails that have been particularly influential or enjoyable for you?
1: Early on, I love, well, not early on, a couple of years ago, I grabbed the Savoy just because I I, I, I seriously, like, I don't know why I don't live in London. I just, I'm just a big, I'm a big sick fan and that's all there is to it. So I loved it because of its history, but Right now, my favorite is my buddy Jim's Meehan's uh, Bartender Manual because of the rich depth of information that he shares. He's, um, he's quite something. I mean, he's, he's a little bit of the guru right now that I really I really admire. Plus, he's a, he's a sweet guy. He's super talented. Um, he's very grounded. And the book is, the cover is so simple. I love the green. I love sort of, it's almost like a uh, blind embossed that little sort of little bird creature. I don't know what kind of a bird it is, but I could Google him. I'll just ask him. But I, I really admired how he put it together, what he chose to add, the histories that were included, the insight, the 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 gear, the tools, the how-to, the recipes. It's very thoughtful, and I think it's really thorough.
0: Great. So we'll link to both the Savoy Cocktail Book and uh, Jim Meehan's uh, the Bartender's yeah. Guide.
1: Yeah, Bartender's Manual.
0: Manual, sorry.
1: Yeah, he's mixography on uh,
0: Instagram. Cool. We'll link to that as Mm -hmm. well. Great. If you could give any piece of advice to someone who's just starting to learn about or experiment with cocktails, what advice would you give?
1: Okay. uh, My first advice is get cool barware. And I don't mean expensive. I mean go to a garage sale, find a vintage cocktail shaker. Some even have the proportions and recipes on the side, so the graphics are kind of cool, 40s or 50s or 60s, you know, sort of set the mood, have a small collection of glassware, maybe get four, you know, shop in fours, get four highballs, get four, I prefer a coupe, coupe glass as opposed to a tall champagne glass because you can make so many things and that's so Grace Kelly and, you know, that's the kind of glass that I really like. So I think a, and you can get these at antique stores, flea markets, goodwill shops, Garage sales, go to towns where people drink nice cocktails and just go to grandma's garage and you can grab them. So I think that having beautiful glassware adds to the experience. One thing that all of my friends, and then other people that are would be my friends if I knew them, but people that have commented about my book, who've written to me or sent me um, emails, they have Friday night cocktail parties. And every Friday, they'll pick a different drink from the book and buy the ingredients and then make the cocktail and plan an evening around it. So that way it's sort of not overwhelming. And what I liked about it, especially with, you know, like my kids' nieces and nephews or my kids' friends in their 20s, they're not breaking the bank. They're not running out and, you know, robbing a liquor store. It might be, be, they might be doing the gins first or they might go in categories so that they can just slowly build, you know, the key repertoire of things to have on hand and then a few little extras add to those. You need a bottle of bitters. You need this. You need that. You need some vermouth and stuff. Um, but for me, it's all about appearance. Enhances, if you're going to take all this time and these things are not free, you have to pay for everything that you're going to be drinking. And you also want to educate yourself about the history. You want to do it right. Or or just go and glug some beer at the local corner tap if you're not going to pay attention to it. I love my cocktail shakers. I love antique swizzle sticks. I've got some glasses that have um, dominoes stacked around the side. I, I, I just go to eBay and I'll see beautiful vintage cocktail wear and I'll just click buy a set for nothing. Just a little cute detail on the glasses that are, they're less expensive than buying them new from the store. And they have, they have a history. So they make it kind of a cool little pretty kitschy party. So to me, getting the right looking vintage supplies Kind of adds to the experience
0: for sure and estate sales are great for those as well as as you mentioned flea markets yard sales and uh, if you happen to be in a place with a good antique kind of representation uh, you'd be surprised by how inexpensive it can be it's not always inexpensive right. at an antique store but i i've man i think i spent Uh, This time last year, I went and I hit maybe three or four stores in South Jersey uh, because I was I just happened to be in the area, and I think for fifty dollars I came out with like ten glasses and a couple of other random pieces.
1: I think you could do that in a minute. And when you're doing your bar, ladies and gents, if you come across at a garage sale a little tiered, um, what do they call like a tiered dessert tray or a little tiered tea tray? Those are darling for your little relishes, for a little cheese, for a little little snacks that you serve with your little cocktail party because you have to have a couple little nibbles. And like just set the mood, pick your decade and create a little tableau so that your friends, you know, it's, it should be a special event. It should be a celebration. There should be a not necessarily going out of your way and having a theme, but, you know, you could do a theme. You could tie it into a book club and, and make something from the year of the novel that you're reading, and then we're going to have a cocktail party to do the whole thing. If you do the Zelda F. Scott, give me the information about Zelda's real-life story because I'm, I'm really interested to learn that. So I, I like setting stages, even if they're little, inexpensive, but vintage, garage sale, they're, they're, those are treasures that really make our experiences better.
0: Yeah, and we do have a glassware episode, so if anyone is interested in uh, getting your curiosity peaked, please do go back into the Modern Bar Cart archives. It's in the first 10 episodes. We spoke with Andy Whitehead of Licorary, and we talk about all these things, kind of like the anatomy of the glass with you know just different terms that you'll find, how to identify if something's vintage. So check that out, folks, if you're interested in picking up some vintage glassware. And in terms of setting the mood, We've got a playlist for everything these days, so it shouldn't be that hard. I'm a fan. All right. So uh, before we jump off here, how can people best digitally connect with you, or uh, how and where can they find this book and perhaps some of your other prints?
1: Well, um, they can learn about me by going to my website, which is mwoodpen.com. So it's my name and a pen, mwoodpen.com. I've got sort of a hodgepodge of portfolio, cool projects, press about it, all of the books that I've illustrated, a list of VIP clients, some anecdotes about different commissioned work that I've done and, and uh, you know, a bunch of, bunch of junk. So you can see my world there. I think there's a link on there that you could buy one of my cocktail prints. I, I know there is. I say I think it is. I, I, I edit it all the time, but I'm pretty sure I kept it on there hard to say. I am approaching 60. And then um, my books, they're sold all over the world, which I really think is cool. I'd be here outside of Chicago working and drawing and thinking, you know, poor me, I don't go anywhere. And then I'd Google my book and I'd say, oh my God, you know, we're in Korea, we're in Indonesia, we're at the Tate, we're at the National, we're at the this, we're at the this. And I see on Twitter when someone's, uh, you know, got a book at a cool bookstore far away, they are thrilled. And to me, that's thrilling. So when we were in Paris, we went to Shakespeare and Company and, you know, visited my books and thought, well, that's cute. We didn't buy them because we can get them for less here. And you can just Google the books. I know I push independent um, bookstores as, as much as possible. So that would be my first first guess. They can order it even if they don't have it in stock. So that would be my first vote. We all know there are other places to get it, but I say let's help the little guy. So Architecture of the Cocktail architecture of the shot and I've got some uh, city sketches city sketch london city sketch paris city sketch New York yeah and knock on wood I'll have architecture of the coffee before before too long
0: beautiful well we will put some links to your personal stuff on the show notes page and i'm not gonna put the amazon link for your book um because Thank we're gonna <laughs> we're I'm gonna going help to, a little guy yeah that's what we're gonna do so uh folks you know what your local bookstore is and if you don't shame on you
1: yeah. Oh, Instagram, because that is I. I love Instagram. It's like I'm gonna say it's a slideshow. Instagram. I my handle for anything social is uh, at mwoodpen.
0: Great. Melissa, thank you so much for being on the podcast.
1: You're welcome. Now go get yourself a nice little cocktail. Hey,
0: everybody. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, there's two big things you can do for us here at Modern Bar Cart. One would be to tell your friends and family if you think they'd enjoy listening to us talk about cocktails. And if they don't download podcasts, they can always stream our episodes on their desktop directly from the show notes page at modernbarcart.com. The other thing you can do to help would be to head on over to iTunes or wherever you download your podcasts and leave us a review. Five stars are great, but we're more interested in your feedback. And the beauty is the more reviews we have, the easier it will be for other folks out there to learn about our show. We're trying to start a cocktail revolution here. And by spreading the word, you're helping us fight the good fight. This episode was made possible with editing and production assistance by Samantha Reed, cocktail and architecture insights by Melissa Wood, and a little bit of interview magic by yours truly. This has been a Modern Bar Cart production, copyright 2018.